Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to be with you all. And I'm delighted to welcome a good friend of mine to the show today, um, someone I've wanted on the show for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got a really interesting topic to talk about. So welcome to the show, Stephanie McCowan. Thank you, James. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. Uh, and uh, just so you know, Stephanie is a podcaster and an author. Um, she's written a couple of books, uh, including just a beautiful book of poetry, which just she just released. Um, and, and also this book called Raise the Evangelical, which should give you a hint of what we're going to talk about today. Um, because um, we're going to talk about fundamentalism and we're going to talk about it in relation to um, uh, religion and politics, what's going on in the States, what's happening in the UK as well. And it's going to be a really interesting conversation. We're just going to, it's not going to be really an interview. It's going to be a kind of general conversation. We haven't planned it like methodically. We're just going to see where it goes. So um, it's going to be really interesting. And uh, so I wanted to start... I just thought I I wanted to start by define I think by both of us kind of defining what we mean by fundamentalism and, and our experiences of it. So um, yeah, so what what are your experiences of it, and what's your kind of definition of it? Well, when I think of fundamentalism, I think of a mindset that can exist in religion or politics or really any number of things that is just absolutely unwavering. That everything is black and white. There is no nuance. There is no room for deviation from things being right or wrong. Um, there's no gray area in the in the realm of religion. It's a it it's it shows up in the need to know who's in and who's out. That was the religious ideation I was um, or the religious ideology rather that I grew up with. It was very important to know who was in and who was out of our heaven club, I guess, the group of us who were going to make the cut. And I think in politics, it has shown up in the absolute inability for people on the far left and the far right to understand any perspective other than their own. And not only an inability, but an unwillingness to explore ideas that that require compromise and require meeting people somewhere in the middle. And it, it I think fundamentalism is abusive by its very nature. I don't think that, you know, people who are are stuck in that mindset, um, I think they've forgotten some of their humanness, you know, because mm. our, our experience as human beings is never as cut and dry as people want it to be. And that's just life. So. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. I mean, yeah, my my kind of definition of it is is very similar. It's it's essentially I am right. I have all the correct morals, values, beliefs, mm-hmm. uh, opinions, and if you disagree with me, you are wrong and you are out. And then I have the right to shame you, guilt you, embarrass you, humiliate you, mock you, um, exclude you, and cancel you, um, and. Uh, it's uh, it's a very closed-fisted way of believing. It is for me. It is a way of seeing the world. It is a way of believing. It is not a it is not a set of beliefs. It is as it is a way of holding beliefs. Yep. Um, like for example, like you could have two people who have different beliefs, but both have a very open-handed, non-dualistic way of thinking and seeing the world. And are willing to listen to each other's stories, are willing to listen to each other's opinions, are willing to learn from the other, are willing to shift their position if they feel like they it's appropriate to and they're on that path and you know the, because they have that openness to grow and to learn and to maybe admit they were wrong about something and to uh to move into a different uh a different um you know theology a different set of beliefs whether it's political or religious or anything else um and that is a healthy way of seeing the world but that is completely the opposite of fundamentalism mm-hmm. when you say fundamentalism is is abusive by its nature it is exclusive by its nature it is divisive by its nature um and it uses those things to control people and to control countries yeah. um 
and to control institutions. And that is what it does. And it is, and we have both experienced, uh, both experienced abuse, spiritual abuse from fundamentalism. Um, and both have been through the trauma of, of that and the trauma of actually coming out of it as well. And yeah. watching other people do it to each other and do it to us. Uh, and it is really, really nasty. And, um, you know, and, and we obviously, we, we especially see this in the conservative evangelical church. That's a very obvious place that everyone kind of knows is fundamentalist. And when people say fundamentalist, sometimes that's what they mean. Right. Um, they don't, and this is this is really what we want to talk about today. We don't really want to talk about the kind of progressive conservative, not the progressive conservative. That doesn't make sense. The fundamentalist conservative evangelical um, side of things, because we all know that that's damaging and abusive, and and we've seen the consequences of that in both of our countries politically in the last few years. Um, and that is becoming more and more obvious. What is potentially more dangerous, in a way? And is just as prevalent and just as abusive is this thing called progressive fundamentalism, which is people who basically have a have progressive, usually far left, um, extreme political views or um, progressive Christian beliefs, but hold them, but hold them in a very fundamentalist way, um, and. Um, you know, people who there are groups of people with with names which we probably shouldn't say because <laughs> <laughs> it might upset yeah. people. But everyone knows that we're talking about that that label themselves as not being evangelicals anymore and are just as fundamentalist as the evangelicals. And uh, and this is this this I think we've talked about this off off like outside of recording. Yeah, this makes us both really, really angry. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, it, they are the most frustrating group of people um, in the world because they they either don't see that they're, they're, they're so fundamentalist or if they do, they don't care. Um, and they and I think some of them genuinely don't see it. Like, I think genuinely they don't see it. It's And it's infuriating because you cannot argue with them. You cannot. No, you, it's impossible to have a have healthy dialogue with uh, a fundamentalist progressive because they won't listen to you. Um, like here's an example of this. Right, I I I am generally in the kind of centre left of politics. I am not on the far left, um, and um, so I I criticised the former leader of the Labour Party in this country, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who essentially is Bernie Sanders but English. Um, <laughs> Um, that's for American listeners. That's who he is. Um, potentially even further to the left than Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders actually, um, and and I think I criticised him or something on on Twitter or something like. And it was perfectly healthy, reasonable critique. And some some person put me on a list on Twitter, right? Which yeah, which, and, and, and and yeah, the list was called Nazis, fascists. <gasps> And uh, what was it? And, and yeah, not it had Nazis and fascists in the in the oh name anyway. And I was like, what? Wow! What? <laughs> you think I'm mad because I don't agree with this? Because with like with extreme like basically communist policies, like wow. right? Okay, yeah, that's that's that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it was like it was just ridiculous. It was like I was almost laughing because it was just. Mm-hmm. Funny, like, and I think they they got rid of they. Somebody dumped the list or got me off or dumped me off the list in the end. But mm-hmm. oh man, you know, I mean, that's just an example of it politically in, in the UK. But you've had experience of this in the, in America with with someone else. Oh yeah, um, I've had several experiences of this type because this election in the United States has been so contentious. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, when we think of fundamentalists, we often think of the fundamentalist conservatives, but there are a lot of fundamentalist um, leftists as well. And they are just as bad as the conservatives. I have been called 
uh, a rape apologist. I have been called a Trump supporter, which in the United States, that's, you know, probably is there too. That's a huge offense. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. you, don't get, you don't get called a Trump supporter in any way that is, you know, meant for good when it comes from a liberal or leftist person. I mean, it's an insult. Um, you know, I have been told that I don't care about other people because I already have health care and what, you know, so I'm not concerned with how anybody votes because I've got what I need and on and on and on. And this is all because I said, you know, it's time to get over Bernie Sanders. He's not going to be the nominee and it's time to move forward and, and vote for somebody who's actually going to win. And rather than you know, I, I guess I just I have a hard time wrapping my mind around how it's a bad thing to have somebody who knows how to meet people in the middle. You know, there is there are very few situations where taking an extreme stance one way or the other is actually beneficial. Right now in the United States, we are living under an administration that has been decades in the making from people who uh, are what I would consider to be far right. I mean, this is their dream come true. And it has been it has been a nightmare for everyone else. So I'm thinking it's not going to be any better if we go to the extreme left either. You know, that's that's not going to put us in a better position whatsoever, um, because you don't just become president and then magically everything happens. I mean, it's a fight to get anything done, even with a Congress that likes you. And when you've got somebody in office who refuses to meet people in the middle, or even if he does, if, even if Bernie Sanders wouldn't have, a lot of his supporters um, are far left and do not want to meet people in the middle. And I don't see how that is any less divisive than what we have right now. And for having said those things, I was um, basically called no, no better than a Trump supporter. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's the, 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 the thing that happens with this is that, and it's the same script every single time, right? Like, okay. like if you don't support, if you say you don't support them or whatever, they say, it's, oh, so you don't care about, you don't care about investment in health service. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about, Building houses, people who don't have it, don't have them, or you know, you don't care about this. Like, and it's like it's just shame. Mm -hmm. It's shaming people um, mm -hmm. you know, by making it passive aggressive behavior, and that is exactly what conservative people do. Mm -hmm. Like people, like you know, think of purity culture, right? You know, oh, that's yeah. what saying. it's the same thing. It's like, oh, you know, um, yeah, don't have sex outside of marriage, but if you do, you're evil and nasty, and you might have. You know, you might have children outside of wedlock, or something evil might happen to you. Like, yeah. um, like it's again, it's the same, it's the same tactic, just different language, and it is not in any way progressive. I said this on Twitter today that fundamentalism is not progressive, even if it calls itself progressive and it uses progressive language. It is not progressive. Mm -hmm. um, it is the same thing. Like the metaphor I always use for this is the Hunger Games. Uh, the mm -hmm. Hunger Games. Um, Mockingjay chapter two, the last movie, basically. Yeah. Uh, and and at the end of it, they because this is about a, an empire, corrupt empire, who exploit people. And there is this resistance that wants to overthrow this empire, right? Who, mm -hmm. Katniss, the main character, joins them and fights for them, becomes a symbol of the resistance, right? And so they win. They win. They beat the, the empire. And she's, been, she's going to be given the task of kind of executing publicly the leader of this and she goes to meet him before the, before this happens mm -hmm. and he and then they have a conversation and he and and during that conversation she begins to understand that the people who've replaced him are just as bad yeah. because then you, and then you hear them talking about they want to do their own kind of version of the hunger games but for people who they've just overthrown and it's like and she starts to realize god this is the same thing this is the same thing. We've just exchanged one thing for another. And so she actually kills the leader of the resistance instead of <laughs> the leader mm -hmm. of the, um, the the oppressive leader because she realizes, oh, this is, that, that, that oppressive leader is going to die anyway. 
because they're going to execute him anyway, whether I do or not. But they're not going to execute this other person, and this could end up being just as bad. And of course, she gets, you know, there's consequences for that. But ultimately, a better leader gets elected and a better system gets created instead. And it is, you want to understand progressive fundamentalism, that movie and the end of that movie, especially the last kind of half hour, 20 minutes, is really a really good insight into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I remember that scene very well. And I was, um, you know, it was at the time when I saw it, I thought, wow, that's powerful. Because I think, you know, a lot of the fundamentalist progressives that I know are people who came out of a fundamentalist religious background. And I don't think that they are aware of it, but they just simply switched one form of fundamentalism for another. And in doing so, they have become just as abusive as the people who abused them when they were in the religious fundamentalism. I don't see anything progressive in deciding that voting your ideals is more important than voting for someone who could actually win and who could help end this Trump nightmare for all of us. Um, Mm. I don't see how that's progressive whatsoever, because here's the reality of it. If we have, you know, and I have, I've lost friends who insist that third party voting is the only way to vote, who insist that, you know, Bernie Sanders got, um, uh, defeated by the establishment and they're going to write him in. And I'm just, you know, I, I told them I failed to see how you're helping your cause at all, because what you're going to do is help ensure another four years of what we've had. And that's not going to get us any closer to universal health care, you know, Medicare for all, whatever you would like to call it. That's not going to get us any closer to racial justice than we are now. That's not going to get us any closer to any of the things they say they want. And it's just a matter of doing that because they want revenge because their guy for a second time in a row didn't get the nomination. And I don't have like bad feelings toward all of his supporters in general, but (laughs) there are some supporters, not just of Bernie Sanders, but of really anybody who's not like an, a quote, establishment Democrat. Um, they can be very unreasonable people and it's hard to be patient with them. And I'm to the point, you know, this election has been, this election cycle has been grueling and I'm to the point of, I just don't have it in me to continue finding nice ways to say these things, (laughs) you know, I'm just done. And if, if, you know, if, if voting your ideals is more important to you, than voting in a way that can actually move us forward, even just a little bit, then I'm sorry, that's not progressive. That's just fundamentalism of another kind. And it's just having a temper tantrum on your ballot. That's how it looks to me. Yes, it's childish. It's childish. I'm not going to help out in saying that. It's childish. It's a childish way of seeing the world. It's a childish way of, oh, I can't get what I want. So I'm I'm just going to make sure that other people don't get what they want. Yeah. You know, that, that, that literally is what it is. And it, that is a childish way of seeing the world. Um, and I, I study politics. I've got a degree in politics. Uh, I don't talk about that much. But one thing I'd learn is that if you look at history, uh, the, only, the only radical parties, the only radical um, candidates that get elected are right-wing radical candidates. Left-wing radical candidates don't get elected ever. Mm-mm. Like ever, yeah. um, like, and this is this is like over a hundred years. Like, it's never, it's never happened. Uh, and <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in the UK or America, and and it, and so, so so say that one of them gets elected, right? So they're in power for four years. They do whatever they want to do. As, as soon as, as soon as they're out of power, whoever comes in after them is just going to change it all back, right? <laughs> They're not going to, you know, you won't, and you don't get sustained change that way. Like, sustained change means, like, real progressive change comes when you compromise and you listen to different sides. So, you listen to the far left and you listen to the moderate left, and maybe you listen to, you know, to um, the kind of center right because, you know what, you have to win elections to actually make any change. You can't just, like, force your ideals on people. 
and say, we're right, listen to us, you have to listen to us. Like, um, vote for us. Because this is what the far left can often do. And um, it's like, they don't understand that to win power, you have to get people to vote for you. You have to meet their needs and listen to them and listen to what they want and listen to what they're concerned about and win them over. You can't, you have to compromise to, to win them over. This is why Bernie Sanders would never have won an election. Um, and it's why Jeremy Corbyn would never have won an election because people don't, people, the majority of people will not vote for that kind of candidate. They never have. Right now, I mean, I want to use an example of the last left-wing government we had in this country, which was Tony Blair, and who gets he gets derided rightly for the Iraq War, um, you know. But outside of that, his government, and this was like a this was called like a a center, like a real center center left government. He was even he was even called a Tory by Labour by by extreme left Labour voters, which is like a conservative basically like a democrat calling somebody a republican um and uh when i when i actually look at the domestic policies that he brought in he introduced a minimum wage he cut poverty he invested more in the health service and education and social services than than any prime minister that had been had done for for decades Hmm. Um, he improved the quality of the health service and waiting lists disappeared um, we had the highest quality health service in the world. And, uh, you know, he did all of these really great progressive things. And these are, this was a real progressive change. You know, um, brought in tax credits for poor people. He taxed business even and got away with it and got them to support him to do it. Uh, you know, because he didn't take this stance of I'm on the far left and you are going to listen to me. He moved mm-hmm. towards other people and listen to them and engage with them and build relationships with them and made a few compromises and that and he still got the progressive change he wanted that we all that the country wanted at the time uh so this idea that if you're a if you're not in the far left that you don't you won't, you won't get any progressive change or you can't get progressive change is not true i mean yeah Barack Obama like before when he when he actually had the senate behind him got through some really, really progressive change, you know, and that's what he would have done if he'd had the Senate behind him for eight years. Yeah. Um, people had showed up to vote for the Senate and, you know, not just thought that one person could just magically wave a wand and change everything, um, which is what my what I fear might happen if Biden wins. Is they'll say, oh, right, okay, Biden's won. We don't need to do anything anymore. It's, it's done. Right. Like, you know, because that's not, that's not going to change anything. Like, ultimately, that that's... That that's you've got to, it's it's an ongoing mm-hmm. struggle. You know, you've just got to keep doing it, keep doing the work, keep voting, keep being active, keep fighting well, for change. Otherwise, you won't get it. No, and I think that that points to a greater issue here in the United States is people get so hung up on who the presidential nominee is for their particular party. But let's stick to Biden for today. Um, he is just one person on the ballot. If they're not looking at their down ballot votes, I mean, yes, it would be great to get Biden in office, but he's not going to be able to fix everything. And if people aren't paying attention to the down ballot candidates um, and we are stuck with the same Congress we've had or worse, then there's not much that Biden's going to be able to do. Barack Obama's years in office demonstrate that clearly. You can have all the progressive ideals you want, but if you don't have a Congress that is going to support you, you don't have much. Um, there's only so much you can do through an executive order. And this is where, you know, we get into that question of the purity tests that so many fundamentalists want to administer to these candidates. Um, they want to dismiss this candidate or that candidate because one time they cast a vote they didn't like. And it's like yeah. well, that happens here, too. That happens here, too. It's the same. Yeah, um, it's exactly the same because um, you have people looking at like, and this is Labour Party activists on Twitter talking about their own leader um, or members of their own party and saying, "Oh, look what they voted for ten years ago! Look what they look what they voted for!" You know, 
<laughs> 15 years ago it, it's um it's a really it's a really difficult thing to deal with because they just don't want to listen they want to it's like the new version of purity culture like you say the 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 purity test of are you are you jesus are you perfect have you done everything completely 100% right uh in in your political history or in your life and if you haven't um then you're in trouble yep yes and here's the thing i think that we've all done things in our past that looking back we would do it differently now i know the power that comes from allowing people the the ability to grow and change when i look at joe biden I see somebody who admits that he's made mistakes, um, but those things that he did made sense at the time. And, you know, people like to bring up the crime bill as an example. Well, at the time, the crime bill had bipartisan support. It had support from the communities that would be most impacted by the crime bill. And Joe Biden was not the only person responsible for getting that passed. It's not like Joe Biden alone had was wielding all the power that day and said, this is what we're going to do. No, this was a, this was something that a lot of people supported at the time. And over time it has proven to uh, have some flaws and yeah, some, some parts of it were far from perfect and you know, there were mistakes made, but at the time it was done, it made sense. Now, I've done a lot of things in my life that made sense at the time. And I look back on those things and I wish I hadn't done them or I wish I could somehow do it differently. But I can't do that. I can't take the knowledge I have now and apply it to things I did 5, 10, 20 years ago. All I can do is move forward. And I understand that when a piece of legislation is passed, it has an impact for generations, potentially. Mm. I get that. I understand that. But at what point do we acknowledge that we're not electing people who are somehow, you know, above being human because they hold an office? You know, they're they're prone to making mistakes just like you or I would. And their mistakes just happen to have far greater consequences. You know, just this whole idea that if somebody voted in a way you didn't like 20 years ago, that means you should forever write them off. Um, I just don't I don't buy that. Now, if somebody has shown a consistency in voting for terrible things and that's actually who they are and they have learned nothing, that's different. But when somebody did something and they can acknowledge it was a mistake and that, you know, they want to take steps to um, make amends. I think there needs to be some room there to say, okay, you know, we're going to move forward. And I just don't see a lot of that happening in these, you know, fundamentalist mindsets. And it's, it's concerning because we're living now under a regime that is, that was put in place by fundamentalists. And I, I just fear more of the same if people can't get past this mindset that, unless a person is um, perfect in every way that they're not worthy of your vote. The whole idea of they have to earn my vote just infuriates me. It's like, what does it take to earn your vote? How about the fact that we have 220,000 plus people dead from a, a wholly preventable circumstance? You know, is that not enough to make you vote for somebody who could actually win? Uh, if that's not enough, I don't know what is. Exactly. It's, this kind of entitlement, like mm-hmm. um, unless they unless they earn my vote, then I'm not going to vote for them. And it, it's it's like it's a dereliction for me as somebody who's passionate about this kind of thing. It's a dereliction of responsibility. It's like if you care, but I care. I don't just care for myself. Mm-hmm. I I want I want I will vote for somebody who will be compassionate and who will take care of the poor and the least and the, the oppressed and the people who are outside of everything, not just what's best for me. And 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 you have to be realistic. You have to be engaged with what's going actually going to go on and how the system works. You can't you can't 
you, you have to do that because if you, you have to win office to make change. And so you have to think, okay, who's the most likely to win office who meets most of my values and who will do most likely to do those things. And maybe I don't like them completely. And I don't agree with hundred percent everything they do, but I know that they're better than the other guy and that they will at least do something mm-hmm. and they will actually get a chance to do it because they might actually win. Whereas if you vote for a third party, it's like, well, they're not literally not going to be able to do anything because they're not going to win. <laughs> right. Right. So, not gonna, so you're not going to get any change at all. So, uh, the only satisfaction you get from th- voting third party is, oh, at least my conscience is clear, mm-hmm. right? Which means nothing when, when Donald Trump wins another election because people win, go and vote third party, which is what happened last time. Because, yep. like, there are some states where he won, where if people had voted for Hillary instead of voting for a third party, Hillary would have won those states, mm-hmm. and we would have had a different president right now. So, um, that that basically <laughs> kind of. That, that's a prime example. You can't like voting with your conscience means you could end up getting the person that you least want. Yeah. And you've got, and I don't think anyone could feel comfortable with that. I, if I voted for the party and Donald Trump got elected because of it, I would feel that on my conscience, like, like a 10 ton weight. Like I would like, I'm, I would be like, I'm never voting for a third party ever again. I'm sorry. I did. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm still going to vote for third party because I want to stand for my principles, you know, and the amount of privilege that it takes to say that, because most people that say that are probably middle, upper class, probably white as well, um, and won't be that affected whoever wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can afford to stand on their principles, but yeah. some people can't can't afford to wait four years and to get the perfect candidate. They need something now. So if you care about other people, just make a little bit of a sacrifice and vote for somebody who can actually win and get that person out and actually help people because mm-hmm. that's that's what being responsible is in a democracy for me mm-hmm. and yeah the system isn't right and this yeah the system needs to change and yeah we need to we need to reform everything yes i agree with that mm-hmm. but like you can't just you can't do that like you can't sit at the summer sidelines and do that you have to the only way to the only way to reform the system is probably from within like get the right people in office who will then go and have the courage to change things when they're in office. Mm-hmm. Like, because there are people who could do that. Uh, it just needs to be the right time and the right person. And it's not impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, I was really, I was lukewarm about Joe Biden until he chose Kamala Harris as his running mate. And then I was like, there it is. Now I can get excited about this. I mean, Kamala Harris was the most progressive candidate that we had to choose from. And then when she dropped out, I thought, oh, no, you know, this is not good. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, he has got he has chosen a, chosen as his running mate, somebody who had the courage to call him racist right to his face. I mean, this is not somebody who shies away from being corrected. And I don't understand the idea of. You know, I'm going to vote in a way that I know is not going to be effective because I want to make change. That makes zero sense to me at all. And, you know, I had a conversation with a hardcore third party voter on Facebook. It was somebody I'd actually known for a couple decades. And they ended up unfriending me because I said, you know, this top down idea with third party votes makes no sense. People need to know their third party candidates at the local level before they're going to trust them with something as big as the presidency. If you don't have third party candidates running in your local elections and you don't have third party candidates that you already know and trust. Hey, Hey, sorry. No, there's not. (laughs) Sorry about that. That was my boy. But um, yeah, if, if you don't know them at the local level, why in the world would you trust them with the highest office in the country? So this idea of these third party candidates coming out coming out of left field and expecting to get the vote and then people, you know, having an issue with it when they don't. It's like, well, then get involved in your local politics, because I'm not going to vote for anybody that, you know, is part of a party I've never heard of just so I can be different, you know, just so I can say I voted my ideals. I mean let people get to know you at a very basic local level first and then 
introduce candidates for higher offices after people have had a chance to get to know third party um, people in office. Yeah, build from the ground up. That's it. Yeah, and um, that's 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 definitely how to do that. And, you know, and I I think it's really really a good thing that more and more people are running. You know, like you get people who've never been involved in politics saying they're going to stand for office and stuff. You know, who are who care about local issues. You know, I saw a documentary about this. Loads of kind of Democrats running who were local people basically running who weren't kind of it's that like the party kind of didn't necessarily want them but they managed to get get the candidacy due to just the weight of their support that they built up locally and people who actually wanted to make real change and it was really really positive to see you know and you've got people in in um, the senate the senate now who are who are not really kind of like establishment and who are quite prominent and not necessarily kind of just extreme left, but are but are still not like your traditional candidates, and that's a really good thing because you need more you need more people involved in politics. You know, it's like more. I think everyone. I mean, I have this kind of view that everyone needs to be have a basic level of political education and understanding of what's going on and how the system works. Uh, even just at a basic level, and that everyone should vote, and uh, because uh, it's it's the one way we we get to influence what happens in our country, and uh, it you know, and not and also some people you know, people died for 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 women to have the vote. People died for um, even for just the like working class people to have the vote. You know, it's it's. Uh, it's we, we shouldn't take that that right for granted. Uh, it's it's a way that we can impact change. You know, mm-hmm. it's a tangible. It's not the only way, by any means. It is not the only way by any means. There are lots of different ways we can impact change. You know, protesting can can, can be a good thing. Um, you know, mobilizing, you know, all that kind of thing. That's all good. That's all important. But voting is one thing that that we can do uh, that can impact change. As long as obviously the system of voting isn't isn't corrupt um because it's been about that in america you know but right like yeah um if the system's corrupt overthrow it like organize against it make sure you vote anyway you know it's Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. yeah because it's really important it is important and you know i think that people need to understand right now these are the tools we have available to us yes march protest do what you feel you need to do um but voting, you know, you can make your voice heard that way. And then if somebody gets an office that you absolutely just cannot stand, you know what you can do? You can you can be the thorn in their flesh the entire time they're in office, and you can get other people to do that too. Um, we do still have a voice, even if our preferred candidate doesn't get, you know, doesn't uh, win the election. There are all kinds of ways that we can still make our voices heard. So this idea that because the candidate that I like isn't going to be on the ballot means that I just don't vote or I vote for somebody that I know who isn't, I'm sorry, that I vote for somebody who I know will not win uh, because I didn't get my way. Um, that's That really is, as you said, that's an insult to the people who paved the way for us to have this vote in the first place. And to use that vote so frivolously, um, you know, it is not the way to make your point. And I'm I'm glad that there are more people who want to be involved in politics. We do need changes. No, I don't know that anybody is saying there doesn't need to be change. I think what a lot of people are saying is this all or nothing way that people are are thinking of things is not the way to bring the changes that we need. Yeah, exactly. Real change happens over time. You know, so if Biden gets elected, he'll be able to bring in a lot of changes. Yes, he will. But it doesn't end with that. It will take time. You need to you need to keep electing people who can do that. You need to keep electing people to the Senate in America who can do that. You need to keep electing presidents who can do that. You need to keep electing local councillors who can do that. You need to, like... Like, be active, you know. Um, one great thing we have in the UK, we have petitions, right? And mm-hmm. so 
government petition say we can go to this website set up a petition and if it gets a certain number of signatures they have to debate it in parliament which is like where i mean our system's different to yours we have the house of the parliament where members of parliament are elected and if a, if a party gets a majority of mps they form a government and the leader of that party becomes prime minister we don't elect a prime minister we elect a party to govern and so parliament will debate something if it gets a certain amount of signatures like there's a, a petition right now about getting children in poverty free school meals over christmas because mm. the government wanted to deny them that so uh, i think millions of people have signed it and now that will be debated in parliament because uh, under the law that's how it works so again that's a way you can get real change uh, because you can get these things debated that might not be debated and uh, you can get people to vote for things like and it's it's a way of bringing real change and mm-hmm. it's we can participate, you know, and um, I've kind of gone off the, off the point of fundamentalism actually. Um, cause, um, but I think, I think this is an important issue to talk about that, you know, that because we need to keep working for change. It's not going to be all or nothing change. You can't, it's not going to be, I remember when Barack Obama got elected, it was, and looking back now, it was like, oh, we've won. We've won the culture war. We've yeah. won the everything. Um, now you just do what we want. You listen to us. You do it our way. Um, we're right. You're wrong. Shut up and listen to us. Uh, and that's the end of it. And we're not going to listen to you. And we're going to make fun of you. And we're going to treat you with disdain and all of this kind of thing. And it happened. And you know what happened? A bunch of people felt that they weren't being listened to. And that their needs weren't met, and they, the, the, the government didn't care about them. And they were so desperate to be listened to that when Donald Trump came along, they thought, well, I don't like him, but at least he's listening to me. You know, and that's what happens with fundamentalism, like if you're not careful, because you exclude people. Instead of bringing people in and listening to them and dialoguing with them, you know, um, and this is like, this is so important it's not just important in politics it's important in in christianity in the way of jesus in church you know and like do we want a fully inclusive church where everyone belongs even people you disagree with right. or do we want um you don't believe this you don't believe this or you do believe this therefore you don't belong here like mm-hmm. is that really what jesus was talking about you know i don't think it is like and actually i have a great, great metaphor about fundamentalism from the story of jesus um uh, so you have the roman empire right who are this oppressive um capitalist <laughs> uh empire like who you know oppress minorities who conquer different territories who impose their military might on on people and kill their enemies mm-hmm. uh, and then you have the jews who are this oppressed people um, who want to overthrow this empire, right? And they have decided that the only way to do this is by violent resistance and overthrowing Caesar or whatever or and having their own king, right? That's that's how they do it. And so Jesus comes along and, and creates this mass movement of people and the Romans get terrified that he's going to overthrow them. And and then the Jews, when, he, when they realise he's not going to be their king and that's not, how he works they want him dead as well so they conspire to kill him (laughs) and there's there's this moment when you know when jesus and and then there's barabbas and and um pilate makes the jews choose between them and barabbas is like the leader of this violent resistance this these zealots he wants he wants violent revolution and like, and there's no way that's going to win because the Romans will just destroy it because the Romans are too powerful, right? It's just not going to happen, um, right? And the Romans know that, but they actually, I think, in my theory is that Pilate knew that Jesus was much more of a threat than Barabbas, but he also he also gambled that the Jews didn't realize this, like, and uh, like, so like he got them to choose to kill the person that probably had a bigger chance of overthrowing the Roman Empire than anybody else, like if he got enough people behind his non-violent resistance. 
And uh, so they they killed him. And so Jesus goes through this third way of like, so you I mean you can see the metaphor like you know the Jews are kind of progressive fundamentalists and and uh, the Romans are like um, you know conservative fundamentalists. And Jesus doesn't move to either of their sides. Right. Uh, and this is I think this is why he calls it the narrow path. You know, because you don't you don't you don't go to either of those extremes. You 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 have to find this this nuanced um place this space of inclusion and uh love and social justice and when you listen to people and you meet your enemies and you listen to them even if you don't agree with them and yet you also call out injustice where you see it and you name it you know just because you listen to your enemies doesn't mean you don't call them out on what they've done or hold right. them to account for what they've done um and that's what I think this is why it's so it's so it is the narrow path because and he said that so people few people find it, you know, it's I think that's what he meant. It's like this he's he was kind of saying, like, don't choose the fundamentalist way. It's not you find this way of nuance and listening and and hearing each other's stories and being open to growth and open to move and being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how you grow and that's how you become mature like it's like the second half of life that Richard Raw talks about uh and so we have to find that uh and in, in our faith and in, in our politics mm-hmm. yeah and that's yeah, what you I, find find. Mm-hmm. I think you bring up a valid point about comfort because I've been wondering why are people so inclined toward these black and white ideas. And I do think it has to do with, you know, living in that tension of understanding that life is a lot more nuanced. It's very uncomfortable because that means that you don't get to decide the narrative. You have a lot less control over things. And I think there's a fear. I think this fear exists especially with people who, at least in my observation, it, it, it especially exists with people who've been exposed to religious fundamentalism. There is a fear that acknowledging that there is not always a clear right and a clear wrong, because it means that the, the universe and our world is not as ordered as they would like it to be, and that terrifies them. So it's very easy to default into these fundamentalist, these dualistic ways of thinking because not doing that scares them. And they might not even be able to explain that themselves. They just know that they feel safer when everything is very clear to them. And life is messy. Life is rarely that clear. And I think that scares a lot of people. Yeah, because we were indoctrinated, our culture mm-hmm. indoctrinated us into certainty being a good thing and comfort being a good thing, and that um, like that pain is a, a, that you have to avoid pain at all costs. Like it's in our DNA; it's almost indoctrinated into us from childhood. Um, now, there's some good in in terms of like avoiding pain or being safe. In terms of like you know, don't throw yourself in front of a car or you know watch where you're going so you don't fall over and hurt yourself or whatever, that kind of thing. Um, or protecting yourself and setting good boundaries, you know, to avoid um, being triggered or avoid, you know, emotional trauma or whatever. That's, 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 that's one thing. But the other thing is actually refusing to go into your own pain and trauma and grief and experience it and feel it and process it and, and acknowledge it. Because when you don't even name it or acknowledge it, then it is controlling you passive aggressively uh and it you you are, you are controlled by it. it it and this is my experience like for years my grief my trauma my childhood trauma everything it was controlling me and i had a form of certainty to which i built around it which thought i would make me think oh it's gone but it hadn't gone it was just throbbing and growing under the surface and it was getting its tentacles into every part of my life right um and eventually it got so it got so much that i couldn't it, the structure i built around it couldn't ha- handle it anymore and mm-hmm. that's when i began that journey of growth 
And I had to go into dark places to do it. I had to go into that stuff. I had to go to rock bottom. And I did that with community around me, with friends around me, with um, healthy support networks, spiritual director, all of those things around me to help me through that. Because Mm -hmm. you need need those people around you if you go through that process. You can't do it on your own. Um, And I always say that, and I've said that on this podcast many times, if you choose to go into that, that process. But you have to do it in order to be, to grow and in order to be free. Because otherwise your pain will control you. And that is, certainty is so, I mean, like, I feel so sad for people who are trapped in certainty because it's, because it's not you're not fully alive. There's a part of you that dies when you're trapped in certainty, you know, and I'm not angry with people who are trapped in certainty or bitter. And I don't feel any sense of superiority or anything. I'm more sorry for them because they're not really free and they think they are. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad. It is sad. It is sad. And, you know, having been in that fundamentalist religious background and you know, having come out of that, um, yeah, you know, I get angry and I've been angry even on this podcast. I get, I do get angry at fundamentalist ways of thinking, but there's also a sadness there when I see it because I think, wow, you know, there's so much that is missed by not being more flexible in the way they approach the world. And I remember being in that mindset. And I remember, you know, when somebody would challenge my beliefs, it it didn't upset me. It scared me because it meant that everything that I was told was true might not be. And I didn't know what to do with that. And rather than sitting with that discomfort for a very long time, I just, you know, did that whole thing, I'm right and you're wrong and here's why. And by the way, you're stupid for disagreeing with me. You know, um, and I think that is a a trauma response in a lot of ways um, because people just don't know how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. They don't know how to be comfortable with the mystery uh, of anything, but especially things so basic to our lives as um you know, the ramifications of politics and so forth. I mean, it's, it's an extremely uncomfortable place for them to be in. So, you know, like, you know, we see the QAnon conspiracy theorists here in the United States, and I'm sure you have the UK version of that. And people think, well, how can they believe such wild theories? And it's like, well, it's because it makes them feel safe. If, if they can believe these wild, impossible theories, they don't have to sit with the knowledge that life is wildly unpredictable. And they can take any nebulous thing out there and attach meaning to it as a way of ordering their own life yeah, and, and avoiding the discomfort. Yeah, especially in the age of the internet when there's so much information out there and misinformation out there. Um, yeah, and there's people, and you're right, in this country, there's people who think that, and, and this is real. I know literally they're intelligent people. They're not like stupid people who believe this, but intelligent, rational people who think that, um, the extent of COVID has been exaggerated mm. to um, for the so the government can oppress us and control us and keep us in our homes and impose all these restrictions on us, mm-hmm. uh, which none of the scientists are saying that. Right. All of the scientists, the experts, you know, people who know what they're talking about, are saying it's very bad. And that drastic action needs to be taken. The government's actually not doing that, which is even worse, because uh, we have an incompetent government uh, led by a complete bumbler um, and charlatan. But that's another point. Um, but, but there's people who actually believe this, like this, this, because and the reason is they can't deal with the reality that things are actually this bad, yeah, and that people are actually dying from this stuff, and that people's lives are at risk, and that. The sacrifice that we've all had to make this year in trying to stop the spread, you know, and and actually what they should be doing is blaming the government for their incompetence in handling it. Because if we had a competent government who handled it competently and responsibly, it probably wouldn't be as bad as it is. And that's the reason it's so bad. It's not because they're, they're I mean, like the idea of a right wing government wanting to just dis- wanting to destroy an economy um 
when it's got a, when it's got a track record of economic competence is ridiculous. I mean, like you know, and the idea that someone like Boris Johnson would have this cunning plan to uh, to oppress everybody and lie to people. That I mean, he's a born liar. Let's be I'll be honest about that. But the fact the idea that he come up with some big plan to control us all and keep us in our homes, like whatever, is absurd. It, it's yeah. absurd, and it is very dangerous. It's like flat earthers, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's no science that actually supports it at all. None, right? Mm-hmm. And and yet, these people believe it because they just don't. And they, what they're doing is trying to hide from something. There's this documentary about flat earthers, and they think that it's funny because they think that the documentary makers are being serious and actually on their side, when actually it's kind of very slyly kind of exposing how ridiculous it is. Uh, and they do this like scientific experiment at the end to prove the earth is flat, and it kind of goes wrong. And then and it goes wrong, and you see the look on their faces, and that's the end of the movie. And it's brilliant, brilliant because it's just. Because then, because then, I think it's like almost the, then you realise, oh, this is just a like, <laughs> this is like, oh yeah, this is complete rubbish. And yeah. the scary thing about that is more and more people are believing it, right? Mm-hmm. I had this, I have this running joke on Twitter that I'm waiting for Donald Trump to become a flat earther, you know. Um, and you, <laughs> all the celebrities seem to be joining in, you know. It's it's scary. These things like this happen because people can't come face to face with reality and don't want to and so their brains are so wired to avoid it that they will find any way to do that mm-hmm. and um anywhere that they feel like safe and they belong and there's some kind of certainty they'll go into it that's how cults are born mm-hmm. you know um yeah it's and it's scary this is what certainty and fundamentalism can do mm-hmm. yep and unfortunately, it has a ripple effect on everyone else who is firmly grounded in reality. Um, and that's, I think, you know, that obviously is the major concern right now is, you know, do I think that the that the political fundamentalists are going to create a problem with this election? I don't know. I really don't know. I hope not. But what I do know for certain is that we are where we are because of the political fundamentalists out there on both sides and we we cannot afford more of this and we have to get to a place where we understand that compromise is actually a good thing i don't know when compromise became um you know like such a vulgar thing in people's minds but very rarely do you make progress in anything without knowing how to compromise and you know centrist you know, when this when Joe Biden got the nomination, centrist was being thrown around like it was some kind of a dirty word that you just shouldn't say. And if somebody called you that, which I have been called, then that was a terrible thing. And you know what? I'm a proud centrist because that means I understand the value of compromise. That means I understand the value of meeting people in the middle instead of standing so far to the left and demanding they come to meet me that nothing ever, ever, ever gets accomplished. So, yeah. And the reason that the right win so many elections is because they're willing to compromise, right, with the people. They listen to the people and they shift themselves to a place just where the people can meet them mm-hmm. and, uh, and don't force them to accept their ideology. They move to where they are and then bring them over. And that's how they win. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's only the left that seem to have this purity test and idealistic stuff that you have to come to us it's not our job to win you over it's your job to come to us and do the right thing well that's not how the world works so no you can either accept that or just keep living in fantasy land because like in and never win an election because you know and i think actually there's some there's a, there's a part of me that thinks the hard left certainly in the uk actually prefer being in opposition because it means they can whine and complain and moan about the government and never actually take any responsibility or to, to do anything. Mm-hmm. And they can just say whatever they like and know that there'll never be consequences for it because they're never going to be in power. And that is a dereliction of responsibility. Um, you know, that is, that, and that's what I was so angry about under the last Labour leader, um, who is 
today been expelled from the party um, because he let anti-Semitism become a thing in the party and is still denying it. Uh, his, his supporters are saying that it's a conspiracy theory and it's an establishment agenda, even though it was an independent group that found them guilty of breaking the law, not any government related at all. It was an independent investigation. Um, but of course, it's the establishment, you know, obviously. Right. <laughs> What everyone says, the establishment, not knowing. Yeah. Nobody actually knows who the establishment are, but it's always the people that you don't like, right? right. So, um, <laughs> um, like, I'd love to know who the establishment actually are, you know? Like, um, right. but, but yeah, like, I, I got so angry with him because because uh, because he didn't. He, he did. He, it was a dereliction of duty that he he was so set on his own agenda. He didn't listen to people, and he didn't. Um, go to meet their needs and he didn't he wasn't responsible he tried to force his agenda on people and instead of actually saying we're going to present a legitimate electable alternative that meets your needs and that's what responsible government is about mm-hmm. it's what responsible opposition is about it's about it's about opposing the government where where it's right to it's about having dialogue with them on certain in certain areas and it's about uh, it's about coming up with an alternative agenda that is electable mm-hmm. and that, that people can connect with because that's how you get change. And if you don't do that, you're absolving your responsibility as a as someone who is elected by the people. And that's, I mean, I feel quite strongly about that. And, you know, it's a responsibility to be elected to govern in any position and it shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, and, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. People have got a bit of my politics today. Like, I've never talked about <laughs> politics this much. I, talked, I had an interview four years ago with somebody just before the election, and we talked about um, we talked largely about Hillary, mm-hmm. uh, and um, that was. But but other than that, I don't really talk about politics too much. But mm-hmm. this is this this topic of fundamentalism. It covers religion. It covers faith. It covers politics. Yeah. It's, it's because it's so prevalent in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yep. And very rarely does fundamentalism serve anyone well, not even the people who hold that mindset. Um, a lot of times they just don't see it. But, yeah, it doesn't serve anyone very well at all. No, it doesn't. You know, and I hope that I hope that we can... I hope that this collective trauma that we're going through and collective grieving, that we can, instead of retreating back into certainty that we can actually name it and process it and work on it um, individually and collectively Mm -hmm. and come to a place of healing and then transformation as individuals and as a culture because, and I believe that can happen Mm -hmm. if, if we're willing to do the work, Um, it's there, it's right in front of us. Like that's when you get real authentic change that Mm -hmm. when that happens and transformation and if we just have the courage to do the work, yeah. um, that's what I hope. Because I feel like Biden, politically, Biden can be kind of this healer. He can help mm-hmm. us do that. America and the world, to a certain extent, do some healing. Yes. You know, and then then when you've done the healing and done the work, then you're ready for someone who's a bit more, slightly more radical, like Kamala mm-hmm. Harris. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Um, that would that would that would that would be a really great thing if that happened and it can happen mm-hmm. if we do the work yeah yes yes this is um you know this time in history is a is an opportunity for a sort of reset and you know the way it's all come about i don't think is preferred by anyone but you know when opportunity presents itself we have a choice to make we can either accept the gift or we can dig our heels in and reject it and, and be dead set on having more of the same when this is all over. And, yeah, I hope that people will, will see this opportunity that is in front of us as the world is changing and, and embrace that change and embrace the potential for growth. And we can move forward into, you know, a better future for everybody um, and a more inclusive future. That's my hope. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That feels like a good place to kind of end. This has been a really mm-hmm. good 
this has been a really good conversation. Uh, I think it's been therapeutic. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, certainly has been for me. And, yeah. and, you know, it's important we just talk about these things. And there is no malice in anything that I said. Um, I just, it's things that I just feel strongly about. And I want, I want us to create a more loving, just, equal, inclusive world, you know, um, and um, that's that's what we should all want. And and I think we all we're all looking for that, you know. And mm-hmm. um, we have that we have our, the opportunity to do that. And America had the opportunity to do that um, on Tuesday. Yes. Yes. Uh, this will go out before the election, so um, 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 it will be. Uh, we won't know the result when this goes out. Um, um, so yeah. we'll do it after the election, and then that will be an interesting conversation to. to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that will so, be interesting. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because it's uh, yes, <laughs> you know <laughs> happen. Um, yeah. So, um, thank you, Stephanie, and. Um, you can find Stephanie online. Where, where can people find you, Stephanie? Uh, they can find me on Twitter. I am at StephanieMick75. I am also on Instagram. That's where I post most of my poetry. I'm Stephanie the Poet. Um, I also have books on Amazon. Um, you can check me out there, too. So, Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, That's and I also fun. have a podcast. I always forget my podcast. <laughs> I have a podcast. It's kind of in transition right now because I am shifting away from rehashing my, uh, oddly enough, my fundamentalist evangelical trauma, um, wanting to shift the focus a bit. So it is in transition, but it is available. It's called A Seat at the Table, and you can pretty much find it anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Fantastic. Thank you, Stephanie. And we will definitely have you back to talk more about that part of your work and your poetry and everything um, another time as well. So. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Yes, 